Hello and welcome to Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today the spotlight is on Dimitri Vitsa. For over 20 years, Dimitri has been the CEO of Rock Paper Scissors, a two-headed PR firm that initially made its name working on behalf of an untold number of internationally-minded music artists, record labels, festivals, and venues. In more recent years, RPS has expanded and now encompasses a portfolio of some of the most innovative companies operating at the nexus of music and tech. In 2019, Dimitri launched Music Tectonics, a B2B media venture servicing that very same music tech community, bringing them together through an annual conference, a podcast, and a blog. More details about all of this in the episode notes. And now, my conversation with Dimitri Visa. Hey, it's great to be here. It's great to see you, Lawrence. <laughs> I have one question for you before we get started. I need you to pronounce your last name for me. It rhymes with pizza. It's Vitsa. Oh, that's amazing. Now I'm never <laughs> going to forget. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you won't be able to spell it, but you won't forget how to say it. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually funny. I, yeah, I can, I can spell it. But um, So I have a lot I want to talk to you about, and I have a lot um, about your current both of your current business ventures that I'd like to talk about, assuming there's only two for now. But I want to learn a little bit about your background, if that's okay. So I, sure. I'm hoping maybe we can rewind a little. Absolutely. Tell me a little bit about the Nashville you grew up in and how it's different than the Nashville um, that we go visit on our business trips today. Oh, man, it's funny. So I was born in Nashville and lived there in the 70s, a little bit into the 80s, um, and uh, left when I was... 12 moved to New York City with my mom and my uh, sister and uh, Nashville was first of all like as a t as a 10 year old 11 year old I basically knew the Nashville that I rode my bike my dirt bike in on the in the, in the alleys the back alleys um, we lived on Belmont Boulevard which at the time um, was not it was a pretty I don't want to say down and out, but our house got broken into regularly. I had bicycles stolen from my house. I had my flute stolen from my house. We found a gun in the backyard next door to my house. A friend of mine and I literally picked up a, a, a pistol that um, there'd been a, uh, some break-ins around the, the neighborhood. And uh, now that house that we lived in is is worth millions and it wasn't back then <laughs> so as a kid i didn't really know the music scene i had friends who were um parents were songwriters had had written songs for like linda ronstadt and and things like that and um you know there was an awareness of this music cityness of Nashville, but it was pretty down and out in the in the seventies and, and, and early eighties. And, you know, as a kid I never went to Music Row. There was, you know, I will say in fourth grade, our our fourth grade I have a twin sister and our, our fourth grade teacher had us write a country song. And they had an artist come in and put music to the song. And my sister actually won one of the prizes. She wrote a song that was about our parents' divorce. And I think my parents were so embarrassed 
<laughs> about the, the, the lyrics. I remember it uh, specifically. I was sick the day the songwriter came in to help teach you how to write a song. And so I was at home with my mom trying to write the song. I ended up writing a song that went... Um, I had a I had a cat that I liked best. I had a cat that I liked best. I like I had a cat that I liked best better than all the rest. He was soft and he was sweet. He was soft and he was sweet. He was soft and he was sweet. And one day I found him dead in the street. <laughs> <laughs> and the and the musician like that came in to put the music to the lyrics then started to you know just he he saw oh there's this repeated lines I'll do this fast thing he had no idea where it was going <laughs> so it ended up being like I had a cat that I liked best. I had a cat that I liked best. <laughs> And so by the time you get to, and one day I found him dead in the street, it sounded like a joke song, you know? And I was like, I don't know. You can repeat lyrics in a country song and it's supposed to be sad. And <laughs> I'll tell you what, both of those topics seem like equally good fodder for a country western song. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. My sister's was much better. And so she, we went to the Country Music Hall of Fame and uh, she got a prize and all that kind of stuff. Um, but honestly, like, you know, we were a family of, of uh, non-religious Jews in the Bible Belt. And so our experience of Nashville was very different than I think a lot of other folks there. And um, that's I mean, Opryland. There, there was an amusement park. The, <laughs> the Opryland amusement did, park was there. <laughs> how did your family come to be in Nashville? Well, my dad had gotten a, a job at what was then Peabody College, eventually got bought by Vanderbilt University. He had a background in psychology, and uh, he was there. And then he actually left, and then my mom was always wishing to get back to New York. Um, but I just had I had a good childhood in Nashville, honestly. But again, it was mostly whatever we were doing, running around in the streets. Um, yeah, I think about it just in the last you know 25 years or so that I've been going there, um, just the the sort of sleepiness it felt so small and now it's a, it's a sprawling city, you know, it's got a food scene. I mean, all these, I mean, we're probably 10 years past these things being true, but uh, it really blew up in sort of that, the sort of post.com age, whether it was the, the healthcare scene and obviously the, the university, but it's really an amazing city um, over such a short period of time. Very similar to London that way. I thought of London mm. as so sleepy when I first started going there and now it's mm. Global financial center. Well, it's interesting to watch the transformation of American cities. You know, for so long it was East Coast, West Coast, right? And places like Nashville and even Chicago were sort of living in the shadow of these major global capital cities. And of course, the cultural shift to San Francisco with tech. And then you have a lot of advertising and other interesting things happening in Chicago. Nashville really did fall back on its musical roots eventually. And it became not about country music, but about all sorts of just having that recording music infrastructure, having that live music infrastructure. And so it really is a, it really is a music city and it's become kind of a more she, she city in a way, you know, like <laughs> I, I never could have imagined that valet parking would be a thing in Nashville. It was like, yeah, right. <laughs> you're lucky exactly. to have a car if you live in Nashville, you know, it's like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you might be filling up your, your car $2 at a time. If you live in Nashville, <laughs> like that was the country music scene of my childhood. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, and so had you been to New York before you moved? Oh yeah. My grandparents were there. So I, I had been to New York to see them 
And but I will tell you, like moving into my teenagehood and moving into New York City at the same time was an amazing experience. And yeah, I, I ended think. up going to the Fame High School, the High School for Music and the Arts, which is a public school in New York. But you had to apply for it. You had to audition. And then you um, they, they bust in. They didn't actually bust in. They, they drew from all five boroughs. And so you had this amazing diversity, socioeconomic, cultural, New York borough, borough diversity, which actually is a thing. You know, like whether you're from Staten yeah. Island or Queens or Manhattan or Brooklyn or the Bronx really does, does matter. And that experience... Um, of having that diversity in the in this cultural hub of New York City was pivotal and changed my life in a transformational way, way more than the curriculum or the teachers at the school. Mm-hmm. Just being around that cultural energy, um, and I mean like the real cultural. I don't, I'm not just talking about like the the organizational culture of the school. I mean like being around people from every part of the world, speaking different languages, and diff- having different socioeconomic experiences. That was transformative for who I became. And where did you guys move to in the city? We lived in Flushing, Queens. It was the last stop on the seven train. And so my yeah. trip into Manhattan to go to school was quite a journey. Sometimes an hour and a half, two hour train ride. You know, each way. Yeah. And, and you're actually, you're going from one world to another, but you're also going through probably the most multicultural area in the country almost. I mean, that just that train ride, um, if you were able to walk it, you would pass... Oh yeah, yeah. Flushing, Flushing had some historical Jews, but there was a lot of uh, Chinese folks there. There were still some African Americans there as well. But as you go west, and you pass through Astoria, which has a huge Greek population, you get to Jackson Heights, which is a huge. Now it's one of the most diverse neighborhoods in all of New York, but at the time, very much a Latino neighborhood. And you know, you just keep going through, and 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 you could see by the by the subway stops of who's getting on and who's getting off. You could see that kind of diversity, which was the, the seven trade, absolutely the most diverse and oftentimes packed, packed. You're like, yeah. you know, I can't even imagine being there during a pandemic, you know, yeah. you're inches away from each other's faces. So being a kid, um, like you said, sort of marrying, going into your teenage years with moving to New York, did you have freedom of movement? Were you, um, you know, were, were you able to, were you a city kid in that regard? You were able to kind of hit the ground running? Once, once I hit high school, there was, you know, there was no stopping me, right? Once I had access, I mean, honestly, you know, people talk about the great things about Queens, New York now, all the interesting food and people and so forth. At the time, it was just a hugely disconnected bunch of people that, you know, it was, it was like, these are the people that work for the people that live in Manhattan, you know, um, or work in Manhattan. And, uh, it just, there was not a lot of cohesion for me, at least my experience there, but going into Manhattan is where you saw it all. You know, I remember having friends in the city who I'd go to parties at their house and crash there and then wake up at like, I was always the early riser. So I'd wake up at like seven in the morning and roll onto the streets of Manhattan and watch things wake up, go to Washington square park. I, I had not a ton of money. And so I would, I would get a baguette and a chocolate milk and that would last me for the day. And I'd sit at Washington square park and watch the city wake up, watch the Brazilian capoeira dancers and you know, some other, you know, a lot of homeless folks or, or down and out folks just that's there. And then guitarists and you know, it has such a folk singing legacy there in, in, uh, in the village. And just that was, that was the New York that I grew up in. And that was really interesting and just gave you this sense of anything's possible. You know, you could run into anybody there. Um, you could, you can create anything there. I remember we, a friend of mine in high school and I got a job passing out flyers for a, for kind of a, 
a boutique uh, emporium place that had a bunch of different little mini stores. And we would sometimes toss the flyers, go play chess in the park. But we one day this Australian dude showed up and started um, painting just garbage on this abandoned street corner. And we just joined in. And like for that whole week, we were painting old TVs and tires, bright colors. And he'd ask for, this guy would ask for donations for paint to be delivered to this mailbox, like underneath a public mailbox. And we were just part of that. And I remember hanging out with those guys. And then we'd go to some social activist demonstration and that would be part of the experience. And so that was, that was New York at that time. Yeah, it's funny you talk about the um, those early morning hours. In the in the years that I lived in New York, I really, I love when the city's quiet, whether it's in the middle of the night or right around daybreak when the only thing going on is like the garbage trucks are out there clanging around. Or for me, it was always when it snowed, when the city got oh, that, yeah. that strange stillness and quietness after a heavy snow. Such an amazing, amazing way to experience that city. Yeah, when when there's not as much competing for your attention and you actually get to see sort of the cityscape on its own. And I, I remember we used to play handball on the wall of the World Trade Center, the original World Trade Center. One of one of my friends had a friend that had a a friend that had a loft there and they would stay there. And so we'd go down there and we'd be there in the evening playing handball against the World Trade Center. It was like the play the city itself, the buildings, the infrastructure was our playground. And it was it was an amazing place to be as a teenager. So what took you out of New York? Well, I went away to college. I got a full tuition scholarship to a little hippie college in Ohio called Antioch College. I, I ended up transforming all that cultural experience at that high school I was talking about and in, into activism. I was heavily involved with the anti-racism and anti-apartheid movements of uh, of the that era, of the 80s. And uh, I, so I got, I got a full tuition scholarship for my activism at this school. And so I went away for that and... Uh, fell in love and um my now wife and tony and i moved to portland oregon after that we wanted to move to the west coast and uh, we thought san francisco even at that time uh was too expensive so we landed in portland and had a great experience lived there for several years um and that's where i got my start in the music industry so that's another city that you know um 25 30 years ago or even 20 years ago much different than the portland that could go visit today Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's similar to what we talked about with Nashville in a sense. I mean, there was really cool stuff happening in Portland. And uh, I hate to say it, but Portlandia, we lived there in the 90s. It's totally accurate. I mean, <laughs> that's yeah. exactly what we saw and experienced in Portland. And sure, it's a little bit too precious when you look at it in terms of a, a skit-based comedy show. Um, it, it seems very precious. But in reality, like the food was good. The people were interesting. There was lots of leisurely things to do in a beautiful environment. You know, you got mountains on one side, river in the middle, and oceans on the other side. Um, but now, like we, we actually lived in one of the early lofts in the Pearl District of Portland, which was the same old story as Soho, right? It was an industrial area where eventually people started to move into the old commercial buildings and the artists were there and eventually the artists moved out. You go there now and you see lots of art galleries, but they're not that kind of art gallery. This is like the high end. These are folks coming in from California, infusing it with money. And uh, it's still, Portland's still a great city, uh, but it's it's very different. <laughs> the, the, the cost so, of entry is a little bit higher. <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit higher. Um, Tell, so tell me about your start in the music business. So out of my activism, I eventually 
developed some workshops using music to teach about cultural differences. So when I got to Portland, I got a job at a nonprofit that was involved with community service training, training folks that are in community service programs. And I, you know, it's really my first job out of college, but I eventually earned the trust of the people around me and they asked me to do some workshops at one of their uh, community service celebration events. And I wanted to develop a workshop around, um, cultural diversity, but using music. Cause I'd already been doing this type of work and I knew that especially white people felt super threatened by some of the work and I wanted to make it fun and exciting. I wanted people to feel like, Oh, I personally become transformed by becoming uh, interested in other cultures and so forth. So I developed this workshop using music to teach about cultural differences. I brought in tons of instruments and I demonstrated techniques. And then I tried to draw metaphorical lessons from these instruments and these musical techniques from around the world to get people excited about things like circular breathing and um, syncopated rhythms and polyrhythms. And, uh, and then even how musical instruments were formed and made from the physical environment of different parts of the world. So donkey jawbones as percussion and wooden boxes as percussion and, and, and all these different things to show how we are uh, transformed by our physical environment and that culture is just an adaptation to the world. So rather than seeing it as a source of conflict, see it as an opportunity to really engage. And the same way we were playing handball on the side of the World Trade Center, everyone's playing with their physical environment. They're, they're making the best of their situation. So just really putting a positive spin on understanding why cultures are different. And uh, so, so that was oddly my start. It wasn't really in the music industry, but it was a way for me to engage with other people in the world in the, in the quote marketplace around music. And eventually uh, a friend of a friend that worked at a record distributor, a company called Allegro, which is no longer mm -hmm. around, uh, knew that I was, had this interest in global culture and knowledge and this charismatic personality and invited me to help them set up their PR department. I had never done PR before, but I love the storytelling side of it. So I basically transformed this, this activist bent into telling stories for artists all over the world. And we ended up getting tons of NPR stories and then eventually New York Times stories and eventually Rolling Stone and Pitchfork and all this other stuff. So we, I use that, that kind of cultural um, essence and power to tell these stories and it worked really well for the press and somehow I ended up as a publicist as a result of that. <laughs> That's an amazing sort of evolution. I think I'd like to put a semicolon there for a second and rewind and ask you, what were your musical interests um, as that young person, especially in your years in New York while you were at the fame school. But, it's, uh, you know, it seems at that time, um, you know, world music was like a genre in a new age uh, incense door. Like it wasn't what we know of it today as developed as it is largely, um, you know, through the types of artists you've worked with and the storytelling you and your firm have done. Um, but tell me a little bit about how this music um, you became exposed to it. Was it what you were listening to? As a fan, can you can you kind of fill in that gap yeah, for me? Yeah, definitely. And I should say that at some point here, we're going to make a sharp right turn because we actually don't do what we used to do uh, as a company. Um, so the PR form had a huge transformation over the last several years that really made its fine turn just now during the pandemic, which Great. is we no longer do PR for artists and labels anymore. But we'll get to that. So we will. going to your question, 
So my influences, I mean, I grew up playing music. My, my grandmother played the recorder, like the wooden recorder, right? And my mom was a folk dancer, international folk dancer. And my, my entire family, that, that kind of Jewish atheist family of mine, grew up all playing folk music. My grandfather was kind of this Woody Guthrie type of guy who would teach his my, my, my mom and my uncle and that whole generation of the families around them how to play the guitar, how to sing folk songs, and that became kind of the thing. I never got into that, but that's that was kind of the soundtrack around me, and so as a result, I heard this music, including stuff that reached into like South African, Miriam Makeba, uh, uh, Hugh Masekela, that kind of stuff. And so there was also this kind of international stuff. And it wasn't the, it, I didn't think of it as that new age moment where things were just in those those stores, but it was like real authentic music from those places that just was good and interesting. And, and, and Yeah, and very like folk music adjacent during the whole yeah. sort of folk boom in that post exactly. era. Those artists became, okay, gotcha. Right, exactly, yeah. Now, I, I graduated from playing the recorder inspired by my grandmother to the flute just because when you play classical music, that's kind of the, the path you take as a, as a kid. And so on the one hand, I started getting interested in woodwinds, both classical and jazz, and then also picking up other flutes. So I had flutes from all of, I still do, I have flutes from all over the world. And I was always interested in that that how you make sound and so I ended up getting jaw harps and uh, hand percussion and thumb pianos and all, all that kind of stuff too um, but never like joined a band around any of that stuff so I had that going on and then at the same time being in New York City being interested in fighting racism I was super interested in, in the hip-hop of the day um, and so I started listening to bands first like Stetsasonic and KRS-One and then eventually De La Soul, Tribe Called Quest, Jungle Brothers, and then Public Enemy. And Public Enemy like changed everything. Um, but I, there was all sorts of other bands in between hip hop groups that um, that I was listening to at the time. So it was weird. I could play classical music on the flute, and then I was listening to hip hop um, as well. And then you know, around my friends and stuff, folks were into cl- classic rock, and so I would jam with them. I, I played music on the streets of New York um, or in Sheep's Meadow at Central Park, um, and uh, we would do uh, a friend of mine who plays violin would do Pachelbel's Canon over and over again because you could just riff on it forever and people recognize it and it's easy to make some money before school, after school, instead of school, all that kind of stuff too. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And actually, so, from the from the from the rap, um, I got interested in those those bands, the the, the Jungle Brothers and Tribe Called Quest were, um, and even Stetsasonic were sampling a lot of jazz, and so I got kind of interested in, and they were treating it like with a kind of respect and a, a sort of royalty type musical experience, like black classical music as it's been referred to. You could just feel that and sense it in the in the rap of the '80s, and so I got interested in jazz, and so in college I took a history of jazz class and and followed that back to African roots. At the same time, I'd go to the public library and check out Fela Kuti and then also some instrumental Kurdish music, you know, and make a mixtape with those two things, trying to listen to the rhythms and the sounds and so forth. So I just, that was my version of crate digging. It was at the public library. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I, I have very similar experiences. Um, it's funny you mentioned the Jungle Brothers a couple of times. Talk about, a, um, talk about sort of a lost great group. Oh, absolutely. Um, those under, guys never really under had their moment. Recognized. Yeah. 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 And I stumbled onto a bunch of bands like that along the way, artists along the way that um, I was always like, wow, whatever happened to them, you know? And um, it'll be interesting to see if that stuff ever comes to fruition. It's interesting, like De La Soul, if you don't buy the physical product, you can't, you can't listen to them. 
incredible, um, isn't it? Yeah. Um, which I don't, you know, I don't blame them necessarily. Uh, uh, but it's, it kind of stinks. Like, you know, I've got a 21 year old daughter and she's barely ever heard them. <laughs> I know. And it's, and, it, and, and I think if, if not for the gorillas, um, I don't know that any young person would know about De La Soul at this point. And that's a tragedy. I mean, that band yeah. is so important. So you embark on the road as a publicist and you're getting these placements, like you're making things happen for these artists who are doing really important work on getting sort of flirtation with the mainstream and like introducing these sounds into the, into the culture. How does that evolve? Well, so I worked for Allegro for this distributor for a couple of years. And then I was like really interested in this international music. I always had an entrepreneurial bent and, um, I kind of, one of my bosses before the distribution company said to me at one point, you know what? You're unsupervisable. And that's always <laughs> stuck with me. And she meant it as a that. compliment. She meant it as a compliment. She wasn't like, you're impossible, you're difficult. It was more like, you know, somebody would say, hey, let's do such and such. And I'd say, no, how about we do this? And they'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a good idea. <laughs> and so that always stuck with me. So I, I, I took that to mean, yeah, I should probably run my own thing. I don't really need a boss. And so I left Allegro and started Rock, Paper, Scissors in 1999. So we've been in business for 20 years now. But at the time, the whole goal was to be self-sustained and to focus on what I wanted to focus on. And at that time, it was international music, lots of African, Latin, Balkan, Jewish, Arabic, all sorts of stuff. Just like, you know, the farther it was, farther it was from what I grew up playing in classical music, the more excited I was to check out those timbres and those modes and those rhythms. Um, so, um, so we ended up building rock, paper, scissors into kind of being the go-to music PR firm for what was at the time called world music, always a controversial name. Um, we, we, we called it music of global significance so that we could avoid that whole David Byrne, uh, debate about whether to call it world music or not to me. I don't know. You know, there's reasons to call it that, reasons not to call it that, depending on the situation. But more important to me was just shining a light on this amazing mu- music types from all over the world that just didn't have a forum in 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 the U.S. At, at very much. And so, um, yeah, and, it, and some of it was very traditional and folkloric, and some of it was very modern or just like unexpected hybrids. That I mean, we worked with bands like Tanara when the the Tuaregs from Mali and and helped break them in America did their first three records. We worked with the festival in the desert that they were associated with in Mali, which Robert Plant ended up showing up at and bringing some attention to his guitarist. Justin Adams was one of the producers of the festival. And so we did a whole bunch of projects around that. We worked with Balkan Beatbox when they first broke. We worked with Antibalas when they first broke. And then when Fela Kuti's stuff started to get re-released, we worked on that stuff. We worked with Bomba Estereo from Colombia and Sistema Solar and lots of interesting bands that were maybe integrating rock, indie rock with their own rhythms and sounds of their cultural heritage or electronic music, you know, dance, DJ music as well. And so we would work with the whole gamut and it was just a blast. When I think about that first decade of your company's life and what was, what it was paralleling in other parts of the music industry, you know, we have the obvious thing with Napster and file sharing and sort of the implosion of the, the traditional recorded music industry, but kind of more interesting to me is, the rise of like the music blog culture and mm. what that did for international music. Um, how, you know, I, I think back from, you know, the mid late first decade of the two thousands about uh, some of those MP3 blogs where, whether it was something like awesome tape from Africa or 
uh, I don't know, there were a handful of them I can remember following where it would just be these great, like they'd focus on something really specific, like, you know, I don't know, psychedelic music from Western Africa or, you know, garage bands from Turkey or whatever it was. And, and that it was such a confluence of like the right thing at the right time, mm. you know, as distribution models were changing, uh, as access to the market was changing. Takeaway from that for me was that, yes, Western music uh, exported and, and sort of permeated what was going on everywhere just as much 40 or 50 years ago as it is now. But what local indigenous people did with Western music is such an untold story even now. It's just such amazing regional um, sort of hybrids and twists on American sound. Well, this is what's so interesting about music and people who make music. There are no national boundaries in terms of what you hear and how you ingest it and how you soak it up and what comes out as a result of your own personal experience and the experience of the sounds you hear along the way. And you hear, as you look at music around the world, you hear so many examples of people learning languages phonetically from music, not even knowing necessarily what it means, picking stuff up via radio, you know, like in Cuba or Jamaica, hearing American music, you know, you look at the history of reggae in Jamaica and the influence of R&B and Motown just via the air waves and then the fact that there's this connection this afro-cuban connection with with africa and the fact that there are people in africa who would learn and know spanish from vinyl but not have any reason to speak spanish just because of this musical connection that came over via slaves probably and then back again via vinyl or radio and uh it's just it's really interesting It, it just shows that um the, the national boundaries, even the linguistic boundaries are there for a reason, but they're not really stoppable when it comes to music. Yeah, it's, uh, I remember being very um, sort of blown away by that notion. I, you know, it was interviews with people like Marley or even Jimmy Cliff, to an extent, to talking about um, the role of American radio when they were mm-hmm. younger and how, you know, on a clear night, you could pick up radio from florida or louisiana or whatever it was you know and they would get the get the motown uh, stations or the blues stations and of course uh if you're knowledgeable or if you have the ear for it it's obvious but to hear that actually how it permeated into the jamaican culture or the caribbean culture it's really an amazing story of kind of give and take and cultural exchange and black artists talking to each other across the miles that to me Mm. is sort of the romantic beautiful part um is how these artists were able to sort of reintegrate their traditions um, after well, being sort of torn apart. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, there's some cool projects that have come up where somebody is curated then bringing that stuff back together, even the, the whole the whole Buena Vista Social Club, Rai Kuda, right. African Connection, all that stuff. But what's happening now is also very interesting, and it sounds very different, but I think the same processes are happening. But technology is now the thing that is getting integrated across cultures that is changing the way things sound. And so now when you look at the types of plugins and uh, DAWs and even mobile recording technology where there's certain parts of the world where they're skipping the whole workstation and going straight to mobile. That's and, right. and you know, you, you, you hear stories now about African labels that are purely mobile. You know, like everything's recorded on a phone. And, um, but that, that the fact that some of the sounds that make 
other parts of the world sound more similar to American or Western music are based on the use of the same technology. You know, look at Autotune, for example, which ironically is one of our clients now. We do rock, paper, scissors, did all this world music PR. Now we're doing all this music tech PR. And now Autotune is one of our clients. You want to talk about a global cultural influence <laughs> on yeah, music. Yeah. <laughs> and that all company, right, so- Antares, does a lot more than just Autotune as well. They have other plugins too, so... You sort of expertly led me to the water, so I'm going to take a big drink. Talk to me about uh, your transition, your company's transition. Given that, um, I think we've established that the original, you know, version one RPS was born of everything you had kind of done before that. How do you arrive at version two? (laughs) So about eight years ago, you could sort of see this transformation of the industry for the, 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 the digitization of everything. And I had this idea. I was always interested in using technology in our business. We always, we early on, we used databases and websites before any other PR firms. I, I swear that we had the first original portfolio rich website for a PR firm of any genre. Here we were with this, this esoteric world music company. And I swear our PR website was the best. I had some guys out of Boulder, Colorado um, build a content management system long before I'd ever heard of WordPress. And we were putting online press kits. You probably remember, Lawrence. We we were putting on online press kits. Every single article we got was going up there. We had audio. We had downloads. All this stuff just so that journalists could everything get everything they wanted. We wanted no excuse for this music from these interesting corners of the world not to be heard and covered by the media. So I was always interested in technology. We also built an in-house database called The Brain, which we still use to this day, which was long before I'd ever heard of Salesforce. We, you know, I put tens of thousands dollars into this database. This little world music PR firm was just plowing money into this database that now we still run. It has to-do lists. It has email lists. It has import, export, all sorts of functionality. We have some of the best reports in the business that come from this database that we created a dozen years ago. So anyway, I saw this tech and I was interested in tech and I partnered with a tech accelerator here in Bloomington, Indiana, where I'm based called Sproutbox to build a company called StoryAmp. It was an automated music PR platform. It still exists. People still use it. In fact, during the pandemic, more and more people have been using it than ever, um, where bands and labels can upload uh, their albums and releases and their tour dates, and they automatically get sent out to relevant journalists. So before a release or before a tour date, journalists are getting these automated emails from StoryAmp. So it's kind of a way to provide a buffered experience for journalists to get access to lots of stuff keep it relevant by genre or concert city and for independent artists or just anyone that's on a budget to still be able to do some press. So when we did that, we got a good amount of press for the company. And as a result, I was going to South by Southwest and other conferences to try to get more labels and managers using the system. And I started to meet these other distributors. We did deals with all the distributors, starting with CD Baby, but also with InGrooves and IOTA at the time and so forth. And so I started Mm. to get really informed about the whole music tech landscape and realized there were a lot of people in that world who were kind of keeping an eye on how much press we were getting for the company, for StoryAmp. And some of them started to say, you know what? We could use some help with press. So we took on CD Baby seven or eight years ago and started doing their corporate press. They hadn't had a PR person in a long time and did that for about a year. It started to build their reputation for all the diversity of stuff they were doing beyond just distribution. Um, And then a company called Rumblefish, which uh, we did the PR with through their acquisition to CSAC, the PRO. 
Um, and each year we'd get another client, another music tech client until last year, two thirds of our business was doing PR for music technology companies. And then, yeah, so, so that kind of set just little by little that just grew and grew and it just, you know, our, my interest in innovation and tech at the same time, even though it seems miles apart from a world music PR firm, just, it just, it was a natural flow from there. And this year, because of the pandemic, because of the devastation of the live music industry, we finally decided, you know what, it just doesn't make sense to continue doing PR for the artists that we've been doing PR for, for all these years. And so we actually, we have a couple of projects still going on, but we're pretty much just having to let that part of the business go. Meanwhile, the whole music tech, the digital side of the business is doing extremely well. And last year we launched a conference in that world, the music tectonics conference, which we could talk about. Um, but that's pretty much the, the pivot. Yeah. I want to talk about music tectonics. Uh, I have a few things I, I want to tease apart there with you, but I what I wanted to ask about the transition to your sort of now more purely music tech or tech oriented focus for the company, did you have to learn a new set of tricks and or how much of what you did and your practices and your approaches to the business were applicable from different client base? It's really crazy how applicable it was. Yeah. Like it makes no sense that it would be applicable, but after you know, a dozen years of writing content, sometimes across languages and just looking for those unique story angles. I mean, one of the great things about international music is there's always a cool story to tell, but it basically trained us to always focus on these social issues, cultural, economic, political. You would always get drawn to the larger context. And that always makes the story super compelling. The other thing that's super interesting, and it relates to what we were just talking about before when you were talking about the radio airwaves and African music and, and this dynamic of cross-ocean uh, hybrids and, and, and uh, how these influences were, were kind of merging, that to me is central to innovation. Every innovative idea is basically the combination of two unrelated ideas. So when we're focusing on all this interesting global music, which is inherently hybrid in most cases, there's some electronic piece, there's some influence from one place to the other, we're constantly looking at innovation. And you wouldn't think so, right? You'd think, oh, well, this guy was really into thumb pianos and, and didgeridoos, right? So that's not innovative. That's the old stuff. That's, you know, you don't even have to have a machine to build those instruments. And yet there was always some piece of these unrelated items coming together, even if it was the artist to the audience. You're talking about, once you put it in context, you think, oh, wow, that is a different perspective. There's some innovation there. So in, in a way, it actually felt supernatural. You know, internally as a business, we were always interested in using technology to be efficient and effective. And then with the content itself, we were always looking at these interesting ways things were getting combined and recombined. And that's pretty much what music tech is anyway. So the storytelling piece of it felt very natural. We did have to learn more about the, um, the mechanics of the industry because music tech inherently requires that you understand more about the, the royalty flow and rights and all that kind of stuff, or on the tech side, you know, how the actual technology works, whether it's from the metadata side to actually acoustic stuff or data analysis or artificial intelligence and machine learning and all that kind of stuff too. Yeah. It's all very, it's a fun and exciting. Um, and 
you know, like you, I, I love the intersection of music and technology. It's been my whole adult life. And um, it, it, it's, it's never ending. Like the, in the same way that music is never ending, you can constantly find new avenues and corridors and hallways and associations to, to make and to explore. That, that's the same story of technology. So I can understand the analog there um, between the, you know, as your business evolved. So music tectonics, uh, let me, I, I want to tell you the thing that, that we just, ha we have to talk about because it seems such an important part of the story, but I want to let you explain what it is, but it, it blows my mind how your experiences in 2019 with the event itself seem to make you uniquely able to adapt in 2020. So <laughs> can you talk about uh, with that said now, can you explain to the audience what Music Tectonic is, your vision for it, and what the hell happened last year? Oh, yeah. All right. So <laughs> fun stuff. Music Tectonics is this is is a podcast uh, and it's a conference and we also have a blog. But the conference, the whole idea was that um, we really wanted to create a space and a place where anyone that was interested in innovation and the, the, the overlap between music and tech could be there together. We wanted to keep the focus very business to business. Um, you know, we, we had already done work with our client CD baby with their DIY musician conference. So we had helped them from the beginning with the programming, logistics, sponsorship, everything for the first five years of the DIY musician conference, lots of fun, uh, doing it for a client, trying to follow their vision. And they're, they're great at that kind of stuff. They're really CD baby's so great about understanding what artists need to know next to get their career further down the road, not just with distribution, but so many other pieces of it. And that was, that was cool and fun. So we really cut our teeth and I had done conference planning in a previous life as well but we cut our teeth in the music industry with that and we thought you know what that's a great type of event for artists and there's other artist facing conferences we really wanted to be different from that we wanted to be really kind of um, business the business side of things so music tectonics is bringing together uh, distributors labels publishers streaming services social media platforms because there's so much music interaction happening there now social video platforms invest and music tech startups, hackers, designers, developers, all those folks. So we're trying to bring all those folks together. We particularly selected LA because there wasn't anything like that there. We didn't want to jump into competing with the conferences in Nashville. We didn't want to jump into competing with the conferences in New York. Love all that stuff that's you know already there and going on. And LA just didn't really have anything. And yet you saw the labels were boosting their um, their offices there again. Music was having such a huge impact on TV and film and sync. Video gaming, LA is such a central place for for gaming and esports and uh, and social media. Also, lots of offices there. Even some hardware in in kind of the consumer facing side of of music experience. And so we thought. LA is a great spot. There's nothing happening there. And I had literally not even been going to LA for anything in years, like not since a kid. So I was just like, okay, let's show up. We started doing meetups there and so forth and selected it. So we had our conference ready, October, 2019. Um, you know, lots of, lots of risk involved with launching a new conference, investing all that time and energy, the risk involved with getting a hotel and, and catering and all that kind of stuff set up. And we're at our pre-conference, which is at a different event. And all of a sudden we start getting reports that our conference venue and our conference hotel were in the 
evacuation zone for brush fires. So the fires that are happening this year are much worse, much more widespread. But at that moment in time, the fires were right where our conference was supposed to start one day before the conference started. And the, and the venue's like, we think it's going to be okay, but you can't get here right now because our exit of the highway is blocked by fire trucks. <laughs> And so we had. So how does that how does that meet the definition of okay? <laughs> exactly. I mean, I'm an optimistic guy, and so I was almost ready to buy it, Lawrence. I was almost like, oh, cool. They say it's going to be okay. Yeah. Well, we're keeping in touch with our security guys. They're on the perimeter right now, making sure that nothing gets caught on fire. <laughs> and we're trying to run a pre-conference downtown at another venue, and. Uh, my my chief operating officer, um, Cheryl Woodhouse, she just looked at me and she's like, you're going to have to call this. This is the wrong move. We cannot pretend like this thing is going to happen. And I was like, thank goodness somebody with a strong uh, definitive opinion was standing there capable. And we had our event planner, Bethany, and they just hopped on the phone and started calling other venues. And we literally had to move the entire conference from the west side to the east side in less than a day. And we had to get the word out to all our attendees and so forth. And it happened. And it was amazing. We landed at a great hotel downtown. And at 9 p.m. that night, I probably, I we probably made the call to move venues at 2 p.m., 2 or 3 p.m. At 9 p.m., I walk in, the whole conference is set up for us. They've already set out all the chairs. Everything was nailed down. All we had to do was take the signs we had already printed and scribble out the name of the room. <laughs> <laughs> and 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 write the write the new names and let people know that the program says this name but pretend it's that name and it went off without a hitch people were so blown away by that because my team was so awesome and and it looked like we were set for that that hotel from 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 the beginning and the only I difference mean, was people had to go across town <laughs> i mean everything that you had to go through to pull that off i'm sure the anxiety but also the adrenaline the excitement the sort of the teamwork all you know all the all the mixed bag of and the gamut of emotions you felt for the people who spent money and took a and, and took their own sort of risk on a first year conference what a statement to make what a statement i was so proud of my team and we had like 10 people here from bloomington there in la and they're just they're so amazing i mean that makes all that's the some midwestern can do shit right there <laughs> that's exactly what it is man we have no like people are always like wait you're in indiana how are you in indiana and i was like if you only knew if you only knew i've got the new york energy and you know the the the, the crazy chase your tail energy and so forth and these guys they they don't mess around. They don't get distracted. They work hard. They're smart. They're creative. I've got like four people on my staff with PhDs and masters because we live in a university town and they're like, you know what? I don't want to be in the ivory tower. I want to do something that has a real hands-on impact on the world. And they like music. They love music. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I was so proud of them. They did such an amazing job and everyone's like, your team is so calm. And I was like, good thing they're here. Cause I wouldn't be. <laughs> So tell me about this year's edition of the conference. So um, I take it you were planning to do um, year two back in L.A., full in-person thing? Yeah, you know, I, after, I was going to L.A. like once, twice a month last year leading up to the conference and um, tr you know, thinking about what are we going to do next year, what are we going to do next year? And I was like, we got to go to the West Side. You know, it's just so beautiful. I went to A2IM Sync Up event, which was literally, it's held at a 
beach usually at a pool at a pool house on a beach and I was like wow that's pretty amazing like to be a draw and so we had selected a great hotel in Marina del Rey and I was so excited oh finally we've got a great venue we're near the ocean everyone's gonna be so happy and excited and uh again we just had to make the call it's like you know we could try to run a conference I mean, even back, I think it was in either April or May when the mayor of L.A. was like, no, no events larger than a thousand can happen in L.A. this year. And I was like, well, we, we were expecting about 500. So maybe we're under the wire. I think our timing's perfect. Other conferences are getting canceled, but we're going to be able to do it. And then we were like, you know what? That's not the right move. The right move is to go online. So October 27th and 28th, 2020, we are moving our entire conference online. <laughs> but luckily, we have more than 24 hours to do it. And we spent a lot of time researching. We did like right when South by Southwest was canceled, which was super upsetting. We, we get a ton of business done at South by. We always have music tech meetups. In fact, we had meetups planned at South by and you know, that was canceled like the week before. And so we immediately started doing zooms. My new business manager, Jade did like five meetups in a row that week that South by was supposed to happen. And it was super, people were so grateful to have the chance for the music tech community to, to kind of connect on those zooms. And then we spread it out for why we were doing something called weekly Wednesday. So every Wednesday at noon Eastern, we would get everyone together on zoom, but we wouldn't just do a panel. We would actually have people come on camera and introduce themselves. So you could actually meet and network and get the, that human experience that's so missing from this the the, the Zoom group panel type situation. We we yeah. were just like, I mean, we had Zoom bombers on our first one. That was that was pretty interesting. It was so early, I didn't even know what a Zoom bomber was. But all of a sudden, there was all this weird shenanigans going on in our chat where people were faking each other's name, and some you know somebody would change their name to Lawrence and say to Dimitri in the chat, "Hey, Dimitri, that's a hot shirt you've got on," and be like, "Lawrence, did you just say that? No, that wasn't me. Wait, yes, it was. Wait." And so we had to we had to deal with that. But anyway, we we dug into some really cool technology that we're using that's going to have the whole webinar zoom type experience but it also has digital exhibit booths where the exhibitors can actually have people come in come on video chat or chat they can post videos they can have calls to action where people can engage with them but then we also have a feature that's a networking feature where you log in and you get randomly matched with somebody else from the conference and for three minutes you do a video chat when it's over you get randomly chat matched with the next one so it's just like going to a reception where you're like oh so where are you from and then you quickly find out and then if you want to engage further you can also do a one-on-one video chat with anybody that's attending the conference you just go over to the people click on their name send them an invite and then boom they're in a, in a chat that's just like a one-on-one zoom or google meet or something like that so oh, we're working great. hard to to get that human experience in there because that's to me that's what it's all about it's not really the presentations are a launching point they're a reason to bring some great people and great ideas together but from there people actually have to get some some meetings in and and, and get some deal making going so that's what we're trying to do there. Who should go to your conference? I mean, basically anyone that's in the business that overlaps between music and tech. So if you're a manager, record label, or publisher that leans into technology and wants to know about what tools are available or what trends are happening, um, you know, we're going to have folks from Triller there, folks from TikTok there. We're, you know, we've got 
folks from Roblox, video gaming, people that build festivals in Minecraft. So if you're interested in learning about, oh, mixed reality, you know, we've got um, f- folks from Beat Saber. Um, so if you're interested in learning about how music's getting used in all these new ways, the new monetization opportunities, licensing opportunities, all that kind of stuff, you'll find out about that stuff there. But in addition to that, we've got investor panels and we've got panels that are specific on how you're building out strategies as a music tech startup as well. So startups are also um, welcome and we'll get a lot of value from there. Um, we'll have a pitch session for startups as well where they'll get feedback. And, uh, and basically everyone in between, I mean, investors, attorneys, you know, hackers, everyone that's kind of like in this ecosystem um, should come to that. It's not as oriented towards artists and that's not meant to snub them or keep them out of the conversation. It's more that the conversations are meant for people who want to lean into the tech side of it. So if there's an artist who's self-managed or building their own apps or building their own instruments or doing like a high level data analytics or engagement with marketing, then sure, they're going to, they're going to get stuff, but this is not like a, a DIY musician or an ASCAP or, or, or anything like that. Yeah. And it's not really oriented to students or early career folks. The point is not that there's, they shouldn't, be a part of those conversations. It's just people are here to do deals. They're not, they're, they're not at music tectonics to, to be looking for entry level employees. Yeah. And in so much as, um, you, you know, you're developing this brand as sort of a, you know, a B2B sort of business outlet or, or, or a B2B media platform. Um, what's next? Where do you go next? Or is there anything you're comfortable talking about that you're, you're pondering next? I mean, growth is the only thing, really. You know, I think there's no reason why this conference can't be a lot bigger. There's so much to talk about in music technology. And the funny thing is, I say music tech, and it's these, you know, the types of things that I'm talking about in this conversation. You know, Lyric Find comes in and talks about licensing lyrics, or, um, you know, Tradable Bits comes in and talks about using data to develop fan centric marketing opportunities. Um, so we have all that Link Fire, Chart Metric, companies like that. But most people, when you think music tech, they think gear, they think production, they think musical instruments. We've barely touched the surface of that. So I'd love to get into to more of that down the road as well. But no plans yet. Right now, it's just get through this conference, keep building the audience, um, bringing innovators together and thought leaders together to have these conversations and, and, and get some deals done. That's awesome. That sounds like a lot of fun. Thank you so much, Dimitri Vitsa, and to the kind folks at both Rock, Paper, Scissors and Music Tectonics. Thanks to Ant Taylor and the entire team at Light. If you're interested in what we're up to at Light, visit us at lyte.com. And thank you for listening to Spotlight On. We're available from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon, and wherever you like to get your podcasts from. Please also leave a rating and a review. Thanks in advance. Keep your feedback coming. Reach me directly at lp at light.com. Thank you for listening. Be safe and stay in touch.